0: Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women, a podcast that empowers right-minded women. I'm Kelsey Bowler. And I'm Lauren Evans. Today, we have an exciting 4th of July episode for you, where we are teaming up with Jarrett Stetman and Fred Lucas, co-hosts of the Daily Signal's Right Side of History podcast, to discuss the most problematic women throughout all of American history. Guys, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks.
0: So, Fred and Jarrett, you
2: guys are the first ever men on problematic women. Well,
3: today we identify as problematic
1: women. Yeah, I, I really have to correct you on that one, Lauren. We we are we are men identifying as problematic women for this show.
2: So what are the pronouns for men identifying as problematic women? Well,
1: we don't actually have pronouns. That's what we decide. We don't have pronouns, but uh, we will come and mansplain about history on your show. We're very much excited about it.
2: Well, each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left.
0: Before we get into it today, actually taking a trip back through history, we're going to first discuss a story that's unfolding as we speak. Nike decided to pull its latest USA-themed sneaker from the shelves after Colin Kaepernick, the NFL player and left-wing activist, claimed that the symbol featured on the sneaker was offensive. The sneakers, named Air Max 1 USA, Featured the old version of the American flag, known as the Betsy Ross flag, in honor of July 4th. Very controversial, apparently. Here's how it went down. According to the
2: Wall Street Journal, after images of the shoe were posted online, Mr. Kaepernick, a Nike endorser, reached out to company officials saying that he and others felt the Betsy Ross flag is an offensive symbol because of its connections to an era of slavery. The people said... Some users on social media responded to posts about the shoe with similar concerns. Mr. Kaepernick declined to comment. The design was created in the 1770s to represent the 13 original colonies, though there were many early versions of the American flag, according to the Smithsonian. In the 1790s, stars and bars were added to reflect the addition of Vermont and Kentucky as states. U.S. flag designs continued to change as states were admitted to the Union until the 50th star for Hawaii was added in 1960. Nike has since called retailers requesting the shoes back, and for that reason, we're crowning Betsy Ross as our Problematic Woman of the Week. The Air Max One USA sneakers are not available on Nike's website.
0: Our question for you, Jarrett and Fred, is are these sneakers and is the Betsy Ross flag so problematic that these shoes really should have been pulled from the shelves?
1: I mean, it is specifically Betsy Ross that they're targeting here, but obviously it's something larger. They're targeting... United States of America, this idea that the flag was created in an era of slavery, which I think is a a rather ridiculous contention because, of course, that includes the American flag as we have today, which is basically an offshoot of this flag. And I must say, I mean, the Nike symbol itself, I mean, the, the Greek Nike goddess of victory was also something from an era of slavery. Obviously, the ancient world, ancient Greece had slavery as well. So Has I don't,
0: anyone pointed that out yet?
1: I'm not sure if they have, but uh, it is something for uh, Nike to look into. Maybe they should uh, <laughs> do away with their Ow. symbols of oppression.
3: Kaepernick has endorsing that symbol. He has.
1: He has. It's a a very interesting thing. But, you know, it, it is sad to see this, especially, you know, this Betsy Ross flag. And, of course, there's a lot of historical contention. Was she the originator of the flag itself, which is something that historians debate about? But she was clearly a very important person, and I think, represented a lot of common Americans at the time who were doing big things at the time of the revolution. This was a patriotic woman who was making flags, who was supporting the war effort, Uh, Two of her husbands actually died during the war. She was a twice widowed woman. Four of her five children died before adulthood. So she lived a, a very hard life. And dedicated herself as a a young woman to the cause of the revolution. That's, I think, something worthy of celebrating, certainly in modern America. Whether Colin Kaepernick knew or cared about the story of this, this woman who is, I would say, like many Americans at the time, responsible for the fact that we live in this great country. I don't think he cares too much, but I think the average American should care. And I think it's a sad thing that we're going after this flag, which is a symbol of our country here, especially as we... Lead up to a 4th of July is something that I think Americans should universally celebrate, and the flag represents that. It's clear that there's a large number of Americans who find that problematic. Betsy
3: Ross is a very problematic woman. She was problematic from early on at 21. She came from a Quaker family. She eloped with the son of an Episcopal uh, priest. So that was sort of made her doubly problematic in that sense. She was problematic just in the sense, as Jared mentioned she was pro-American Revolution, which obviously the British found that problematic. And as far as the flag's origins, uh, there there has been debate about that. There there was actually uh, the story really developed about how she uh, designed the flag in the late 1860s, early 1870s. There was even one pamphlet that came out in 1871 that said uh, she came up with the name United States of America. That hasn't been proven, but but... A lot of these things are out there. She has a very strong place in history. And um, the the, the most established story is that General Washington visited her, talked to her about designing a flag. And even then, she was problematic and kind of rebellious. He wanted a six-pointed star. She said, no, we're going to do five points.
2: So the Betsy Ross flag might be, for some of our listeners, one of those things that they have heard before, but they can't picture it in their head. Can you kind of go over exactly what it
1: looks like? It's actually very similar to the modern American flag, except the stars representing the 13 colonies at the time, which of course became states, are represented in a circle, basically. It's a very common flag. If you've been to any kind of 4th July celebration, you're bound to see one or two of these flags there. It's a traditional flag, along with flags like the Don't Tread on Me flag. And we've seen these flags, of course, Many on the left try to turn these into symbols of oppression, these, these terrible things. But this is a traditional American flag. This is kind of the original when this country was created. And our current flag is based on this original design, which I think is uh, – if you look at flags across the world, I maybe I'm particular, but I think it's a very well-designed flag and I think, you know, represents the country, what it was becoming. I think it's absolutely a part of our history that can't just be done away with.
0: When I saw a picture of these sneakers <laughs> – you could tell the whole sneaker was designed to look vintage and having that flag on it was a part of it. That made me wonder, did Nike go in designing the sneaker really to honor Betsy Ross and, and her role in history? Or was it just they wanted to be trendy and vintage and appeal to the Brooklyn hipsters? My, my guess is the latter, but I hope it's the former. But that said, I'm curious to see what happens with this. We saw Governor Ducey In Arizona, Nike was getting some sort of tax subsidies for moving some um, production to that state. Governor Ducey said he is withdrawing that offer, which is a good thing because that is nothing but another example of corporate cronyism. But last time that Nike decided to get political when this all started, when they signed Kaepernick as a sponsor and embarked on some political advertising Surprisingly, their sales actually went up. So it doesn't seem like that many conservatives decided to boycott the brand. Do you think that this is going to affect them in a similar way? Do you think they'll be fine or actually do better in terms of sales?
1: To me, I don't think they cared about getting conservative. It's, it's interesting. The old Michael Jordan quote about Republicans buy shoes, too. It's clear that a lot of conservatives either weren't purchasing their stuff, that they are trying to appeal to a different audience, so that there is a large amount of, uh, you could say, anti-Americanism in this country, or it's certainly people who embrace the Kaepernick message, I mean, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing for the country, I think that is a bad thing for the country overall. I don't think this message would have resonated even 10 years ago, but it does now for a significant part of the country. And they see Kaepernick as a kind of a cult hero, whether the guy has the right ideas about his protests and things like that. I, I, I think there's a lot to be said about what his movement's about. But it's clear that they they find ways to make anti-Americanism appeal to large swaths of people. It's clear their stocks go up. They've been selling. This may be a turning point. I don't know. My guess is that they'll continue to sell very well. But I mean, we see with Ducey and others basically saying, you know, if you're going to be this way, you're not going to get cushy tax breaks. I mean, should they have gotten those to begin with, I think is, is a pretty big question. But, you know, there may now start to be actual financial consequences to these companies that have this kind of. Woke capitalism that I think that's becoming very common. One point to consider,
3: conservatives don't generally boycott as much as the left anyway. So I think that's why you see fewer consequences for these companies in cases like this.
0: Well, it's unfortunate to see Betsy Ross's name get smeared on the celebration of our independence day, but I'm going to say the silver lining of this is that it opened the door for us to have a conversation about her and about her role in history and honor her for that. So thank you guys for educating us on that. We're going to take a quick break. We have lots more problematic women throughout history to discuss. Uh, But before we leave, we want to give a quick shout out to one of our sister podcasts, The Daily Signal. It is a daily podcast that comes out every Monday through Friday morning, hosted by Katrina Trinko and Daniel Davis of The Daily Signal. And they give you an awesome, pretty quick rundown of the news of the day and a longer feature interview with typically a heritage expert who can really break down and get into the weeds of some of what is happening highly encourage you to check that out. It will keep you entertained and educated. Jarrett, you're guest hosting on the Daily Signal podcast this week. Well, yes, I am. (laughs) Yeah, lots of Jarrett.
2: (laughs) All right, we'll be right back. Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring. Welcome back to Problematic Women. We are here with Fred Lucas and Jarrett Steadman of The Right Side of History. And I'm, of course, here with my co-host, Kelsey Bowler of Problematic Women. And today we are doing a very special crossover episode where we are talking about problematic women of history. And the next woman we are going to talk about is Abigail Adams. Jarrett, can you take it away?
1: Yeah, actually, Abigail Adams is particularly special to me, actually, in my wedding vows. My wife and I, my wife, Ines Stepman, actually had quotes from John and Abigail Adams from their letters to one another. <laughs> we, well, I we very much respect the relationship that they had. I mean, it's very clear when you see both of their careers. I mean, Abigail was so instrumental to the success of John Adams. And it's funny, sometimes she actually pushed him to be more aggressive. I mean, you always think of John Adams as this kind of grumpy, acerbic guy, but he was really pushed along by his wife, who was... I mean, really one of the most brilliant Americans in our history, a uh, brilliant writer. Really, a lot of the ideas I think that John Adams had went through Abigail Adams. I mean, they really were a team in the absolute sense of the word. They're, they're the kind of the greatest partnership, I think, in American history. And certainly my wife and I grabbed a hold of their relationship, which I think is so quintessentially American. We absolutely loved it.
0: I can already hear the feminists screaming, how dare Inez partake in the patriarchy and devote her life to furthering your career, Jarrett, rather than her own. But to Inez's credit, she holds her own in your relationship. She does amazing work as well. But it's so sad. That is where feminist logic goes these days. They can't just respect a beautiful partnership as you're getting into
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's to me what it was. I mean, they both were instrumental. I mean, look, it's times of the American Revolution. I mean, she obviously influenced the things that John was doing in his life. It's not necessarily what people think of, oh, you know, why wasn't it the other way around? I mean, why isn't John supporting Abigail's career? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe today it would be the other way around. But we do have a lot to thank Abigail for and influencing the mind of John Adams, who certainly is among the great founding fathers of the United States. Some people call him the Colossus of Independence, things like this. So, you know, obviously nobody can accuse the relationship between me and Inez. And she is definitely a very strong, outspoken <laughs> woman. So that's for sure.
2: Abigail Adams was married to a president, which would make her a first lady. How did her role compare to those of other first ladies?
1: Maybe Fred wants to talk about this a little more, too. The role of first lady has kind of gone through ups and downs in history. I mean, she was a fairly quiet first lady. She kind of influenced things behind the scenes. Some first ladies have been more aggressive and open to the public. Some have actually been dominant personalities in the White House, Uh, Dolly Madison comes to mind as one of the early first ladies who, in some ways, had a more aggressive personality than her husband. Certainly had a lot more spark and did some instrumental things in saving a lot of the portraits in the White House that were going to burn down. (laughs) Exactly. The role of first lady has kind of evolved over the years, depending on the role that one wanted to take. Abigail tended to be a little more quiet. We didn't really know what the role of first lady would be. And I think, to a certain extent, some like to be more aggressive, outspoken. A lot of them today have... Causes that they embrace that become kind of large public causes. And it's a unique role. I mean, it's not an elected public office. But if as a man or in the future, maybe a woman in the White House, one would expect the spouse to have a large amount of influence on the mind of that person. It's just natural.
0: And in talking about John and Abigail Adams, I can't help but be reminded of the HBO series John Adams. Did either of you watch that? Oh, yes. yes. I was a huge fan of it. The series, if, if you aren't familiar, it Chronicles the Life Of Founding Father John Adams, starting with the Boston Massacre in 1770, through his years as an ambassador in Europe, then his terms as vice president and then president of the United States, up until his death on, notably, July 4th, 1826. Someone else died on...
1: Thomas Jefferson. Yep,
0: Thomas Jefferson. They died on the same day, and they regularly exchanged letters.
1: Amazingly, we've actually had two other presidents, uh, James Monroe, who was also one of the early presidents, and I believe Calvin Coolidge as well. So we have a lot of presidents who expired on on the 4th of July, interestingly enough. Crazy to think Mm.
0: about. So Abigail in the series was played by actress Lauren Linney, who I thought did a wonderful job portraying her. Fred, I want to ask you, do you think Abigail in the series got the credit that she deserves for the role she played as first lady.
3: That is hard to say. I mean, we don't know how powerful the first ladies were in those days. Like like we said, I mean, Hillary Clinton, of course, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt sort of made themselves very visible as I want to be involved in policy type first ladies. It is natural. Certainly anybody who's out there who's married knows your spouse plays a huge role in almost every decision you make. And I think that. No exception for a president, male or female.
1: I will say in the case of Abigail Adams, she, like a loyal wife... She was very much wrathful to John's enemies. I mean, she probably had more fire toward his enemies than he did. I mean, he was willing to let things slide a little more. She was not willing to let things slide. And she encouraged him to go after them. And you can understand. I mean, she's sitting there watching her husband being attacked unfairly, especially the press at the time, was pretty bad, often how it is now. And she went after him. She may have actually pushed him into some bad policies, too, including the alien sedition acts that he wasn't much a fan of. But she could be very aggressive in pushing him behind the scenes in ways that I think was really a a force behind him through his presidency. Certainly that's the relationship they had through life. And she continued that through his White House years as well.
2: Okay, now moving on into the 1890s, we're going to talk about someone not quite as well known, but just as problematic, Ida B. Wells. She was a fascinating African-American journalist. She was an abolitionist and she led a successful anti-lynching crusade. But Fred, can you tell us a little bit more about Ida B. Wells?
3: Speaking as a journalist, uh, she is a real icon of the free press, I think. Uh, She was an investigative journalist who really went out and exposed the horrible lynching that was going on in the South after the Civil War. And, you know, as slavery had ended, people were free there. But she was also a big advocate of the Second Amendment because she knew that that was how African-Americans at the time were able to defend themselves against the lynchings.
1: Yeah, and her philosophy really highlights how the Second Amendment is in part a protection of our right to self-defense. I think she articulated that very well. I actually like to read a quote from her that I think is very powerful in this. She says, the only times an Afro-American who was assaulted got away has been when he had a gun and used it in self-defense – The lesson this teaches and which every Afro-American should ponder well is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home and should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. I think a particularly potent message in cases where the law didn't protect people's rights and your only recourse was to a firearm to protect yourselves and your families. I think that's an important message that we have today. I think most Americans fundamentally understand this even though – a lot of our leaders do not understand that. I think she very well articulated this in a time where there was a lot of danger for black Americans in particular in certain parts of the South.
0: So an African-American journalist, a Second Amendment supporter, and I read that she identifies as a feminist. Is that the case? She most certainly is problematic.
1: She was very problematic. She was a I guess you could say an early feminist, however they were defined in the 19th century. She was a member of the Republican Party at the time, especially in the south of that period. The Democrat Party was often the party of segregation, often the party of uh, Jim Crow laws, things like this. And and she very much stood against it, I think, very bravely at this time. And this was people kind of forget that period after the Civil War was a very dangerous, tumultuous time in this country. I mean, Reconstruction was often very ugly. And this woman who did speak out, I think, very bravely. People talk about, oh, attacks on the press now. And I think we've seen in recent days these happening. But these were common occurrences where if you were somebody, especially a black American at that time who was a part of the free press, your life could be in danger. So she understood very well what it was like to have to protect yourself, what you needed for self-defense.
2: Do you think that's why she's not as well known in history?
1: I do think that's part of the reason why she's kind of been buried. You know, her actual ethos and what she believed, I think, has kind of disappeared. And this is, I think, why it's important. Look, a lot of our history is disappearing, period. I mean, I think a lot of people deserve to have their names celebrated, have simply disappeared from our history books. I mean, not many people, I think, at school learn of Ida Wells. And certainly if you dig into her philosophy, I think she has a lot to teach us today. I think it's sad. I think that's why, you know, Fred and I do Right Side of History. Or we do these podcasts to kind of bring these people to life again. You know, these were our fellow Americans at an earlier time who can teach us a whole lot here in the 21st century.
3: And right. she doesn't fit the template that a lot of academia has for historical figures of what good and bad. Uh, and
0: specifically presence. the framework that a lot of feminists have, that a lot of African-American modern day civil rights leaders have.
2: Civil rights Um, in quotations.
0: (laughs) You know, these figures don't fit their narrative. And so instead, they just pretend they never existed. So thank you for bringing her to our attention. I am personally very interested in learning more. Here's a name that our listeners are probably far more familiar with, Susan B. Anthony. This is jumping forward to really when the term feminist, I feel, was starting to be widely used Susan B. Anthony, of course, is known today for her work in the pro-life movement, but her role in the women's movement reaches far beyond that. Which one of you wants to break it down?
3: Yeah, she was Susan B. Anthony. She, along with uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, started the Revolution newspaper. And there was a, a about women's rights. That newspaper actually frequently condemned abortion. It, it attacked other newspapers for running ads for abortion, which it referred to as quack medicine, actually.
0: Pretty accurate still today.
3: <laughs> right. Anthony also, uh, along with Stanton, they also co-founded the National Women's Suffrage Association, which was about, it's about making women suffer. No, no. <laughs> of course, it's about making, it's about getting voting rights for women. And going back to the newspaper, Look like, really quick, though, the revolution, she wrote an article in which she referred to abortion as child murder and said of women who get an abortion. She said it will burden her conscience in life. It will burden her soul in death.
1: I mean, she really kind of brought this movement to bring women's vote to a federal level to its fruition. I mean, she actually, I believe, died before that the amendment got passed. But she was absolutely instrumental in the passage of the 19th Amendment Despite the fact – I mean across the country there actually were – I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that women were not voting at all in this country. Actually, there were a lot of states even going back to the 1860s where women could vote. But this really turned it into a national issue and it's something that had been building up for a very long time. And she was really at the forefront of that. She thought that voting rights were essential. They needed to be guaranteed. There were still a lot of states that did not allow women to vote. And it was a big uh, moment in American history, Uh, I think, when it reached its culmination. I think Susan B. Anthony very much rightly gets credit for it coming to be. So certainly, I mean, there were other many, many people who were involved in, in the movement to bring the 19th Amendment to existence. But she was absolutely instrumental.
0: She was such an important figure in the history of the women's movement. And she is part of the reason that I personally identify As a feminist, I know some conservative women, including your wife, Jarrett, they reject that label, but I embrace it, you know, really out of respect for women like Susan B. Anthony, who were feminists of their time and they were pro-life. Men are allowed to be feminists. What are your thoughts on this whole debate about should conservative women identify as feminists?
1: Well, I do not personally identify as a feminist and my <laughs> my so wife uh, <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, look, I mean, the difference in philosophy between somebody like Susan B Anthony and what you consider a modern feminist, it is different. I mean, it has gone through evolutions and revolutions and I don't think Susan B Anthony would even recognize what feminism has become. I think a lot of the modern feminist movement is at its core anti-men in, in a way that I don't think somebody like a Susan B. S. She would simply say that women deserve a seat at the table, in which American women have often had a seat at the table. I think that's something I would say great about the United States. I think our history has been, in some sense, very pro-women. Women, American women in particular have been active. I mean, frankly, Fred and I talk about history. A lot of our history has been preserved because of women in this country. A lot of the statues you see were women's organizations, civil society, the conservatives we really embrace – has been organized and, and really powered by women in this country. I mean, frankly, that we have an exceptional nation is because of American women. Look, you can call you know it feminism or whatever you want. Uh, the role of women in American society has always been strong. And it's I think it's been a blessing to the United States. It's been a blessing to who we are as a country. Thank goodness for it. The things that makes us exceptional, so, certainly.
3: Jared, I'm surprised if you identify as a problematic woman, you don't identify as a feminist.
0: <laughs> Brad the Feminist coming out here?
3: <laughs> yes, I, at least for the duration of this show, I identify as a feminist. Right. I, yeah, right. I think it's how you define a feminist. If it's defined as women should have equal rights, I think almost 90% of Americans would define themselves as a feminist. But More than 90%. Have, feminists have ill- He's a little def-
0: cynical. Yeah, more than, okay.
3: But I, yeah, n- yeah, upwards in there. Uh, I, I, I I think feminism has been ill-defined, and it's been ill-defined by so many in leaders in the in that movement.
2: And hijacked as well.
3: Yeah, hijacked is a better word than ill-defined.
2: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Before we do, I want to plug Fred and Jared's podcast one more time. We've talked about so many interesting things, and this is parts of history that you just don't learn in history class, or you don't even learn in history courses in college So, again, their podcast is Right Side of History. It is on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you look for Right
0: Side of History. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. All right. Well, last but not least, we cannot end this show without mentioning the famous Phyllis Schlafly.
1: I love Phyllis Schlafly. She's definitely obviously an icon of the conservative movement. I mean, when it really came into being, she was at the spearhead. And, you know, what a tough lady who really understood the challenges that were faced in this country. I mean, she was to say that she was instrumental in defeating the Equal Rights Amendment, which I think was dangerous. I think it you know, something that she picked on early, I think would have absolutely passed if it wasn't for her organization and being a leading advocate as a woman saying that I don't embrace this. This is bad for women. This is a part of what she saw as the pro-abortion side of the spectrum. I think that is that is in large part the purpose of the E School of Rights Amendment is to establish a lot of these kind of abortion laws and make sure that, for instance, it's a right to Americans to pay for people's abortions and things like that. I think she very much got on to this And saw a lot of these things and headed them off. So you know, to say that she's you know one of the problematic women in history, I I think that's a major understatement. I think she leaves a a very much a long legacy in this country.
3: And I think part of that legacy too is uh, important to remember. In 1964, she wrote the book "A Choice, Not an Echo," and that that was a time when the Republican Party was almost sort of a just a very milk toast. You know, keep the New Deal going, but just restrained a little bit. There was no conservative movement. So she had almost as much to do with the Goldwater movement as uh, Barry Goldwater's book, A Conscience of Conservative, with this book, A Choice, Not an Echo.
2: So she was most famous for helping stop the Equal Rights Amendment. When you just hear the Equal Rights Amendment, you say, oh, yeah, I'm for equal rights. So can you first tell us why she decided to stop the Equal Rights Amendment and kind of talk about how we're having that same debate today?
1: We definitely are having this debate. In fact, it's something that's being pushed again by members of the left. They're trying to get one more state. They believe all they need is one more state to actually pass this as an amendment. Now, there's obviously a lot of legal challenge to that, but it's definitely becoming part of – I mean the, the modern left is really trying to reembrace this idea, and I think it does some – potentially some very radical things, including – I mean it will take a lot of these, uh, frankly – Gender protections away from women too. I mean, talk about things like like the draft. I mean, something right now is reserved for only men. Have to sign up for a selective service. With the Equal Rights Amendment, we have to be men and women. I realize the draft is maybe something that's kind of far from people's mind, but that is a, a concern. What I was talking about earlier, especially with the the issue of abortion, I think that really the, the main drive of trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment is to say essentially that women have an equal right to having an, an abortion, basically have it subsidized uh, by the American people. I think there's a misnomer, this idea that women don't have equal rights in America uh, based on the original Constitution. I think – I think rights in this country do apply equally to men and women. I think it's a misnomer that there has to be some kind of special carve-out for women specifically. I mean I think when you look at the Bill of Rights, when you look at the Constitution, those things all apply to women equally to men. And and I think that that is – I think the argument from those who push the Equal Rights Amendment is that somehow that's not enough essentially. that There needs to be some kind of special carve-out through an Equal Rights Amendment. And I think that's where you create a lot of legal mischief, especially on the issue of abortion.
3: On a personal note, I would say that of the list we went through today, Phil Schaff is the only one I've interviewed. <laughs> I interviewed <laughs> her at the 2008 Republican Convention. So. Very cool. Pretty fascinating situation.
0: So. Do you have any insights or memories from that?
3: She was speaking at a, uh, at a pro-life event on, on the side, and she was very forceful on that. So that ties in with uh, where she stood and sort of maybe even in the footsteps of Susan B. Anthony, where she was a strong advocate on that.
0: Well, Phyllis Schlafly passed away on September 5th of 2016. So not that long ago compared to all these other problematic women we've gone uh, through. Right.
3: I did not interview Betsy
0: Ross. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all these other problematic women we've discussed today. And a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we were addressing a New York Times article asking where is the Phyllis Schlafly of our time? Do either of you think that there is a need for a modern day figure like her. Or do you think that we have one?
1: I mean, I think it's a little misnomer that there's no conservative women, maybe none that have reached the level of prominence of a Phyllis Schlafly. But there are a lot of especially young women coming up who are very conservative, who I mean, obviously outlets like The New York Times don't like Americans to know that there actually are a lot of pro-life women in this country. Uh, they They're not represented in newsrooms. They're not represented in a lot of our popular media, but their voices definitely exist. I think it's, it's it's really our mainstream institutions, our media institutions that try to bury these voices that are absolutely out there. I mean, you talk about issues recently with especially uh, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. Women were instrumental in that, and especially supporting a lot of the senators who had supported Brett Kavanaugh. That was a major story. And, and maybe a lot of these women aren't necessarily major public voices, but I think a lot of are going to rise up in the years to come and reject, I think, the modern feminist outlook. I think, obviously, my wife's among them, but there are plenty of others out there who are rejecting the kind of this modern, you know, the current wave feminism. You know, you get the fourth, fifth, who knows how many other waves that I think will very much be against the ideas of some of the women we talked about today on our podcast, and I think there are going to be those strong voices, maybe even stronger than a lot of the conservative men in the future too. Uh, you know, I I do have to give credit to a lot who you know come under a lot of pressure. You know, there's this is kind of idea that ah uh, feminist women have to stay in solidarity, but you know, there's a lot of women who just simply disagree with that outlook, and I think it is important that their voices be known, especially at this time where we do have a very tumultuous time where so many issues are you know changing very quickly.
0: I think you're right about conservative women being boxed out from the mainstream institutions that you would need in order to become a household name like that. I know a lot of conservative women who are incredible writers. And it's very, very rare, if ever, that any of them will make it to the pages of The New York Times or The Washington Post. Luckily, we have conservative outlets such as The Daily Signal to lift up those voices You know, this is a theme that we are constantly discussing in the show, how we as conservative women want to be a bigger part of the conversation. And unfortunately, there are forces at work trying to box us out. Fred, do you have any thoughts?
3: I think uh, as far as talking about the next Phil Schauffele, I don't think there's the next William F. Buckley either. I mean, those figures were at a time, both of them, when conservatism almost didn't exist and, and they were building a movement. Today you have a strong conservative movement that's a lot of diverse voices. They often fight each other, but, I mean, both men and women. uh, And, I mean, you just tune in to uh, read conservative magazines, conservative TV shows. You you will see a lot of those people of, you know, men and women.
2: Okay, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. I'd like to thank Jarrett and Fred for coming on and sharing all this very interesting information. Can you share a little bit more about your podcast, where you can find it, and also where can people find you on social media?
1: Well, absolutely. Our podcast is called... The Right Side of History, we kind of go through the issues that I think are pertinent today, and we kind of connect them to the past. We explain it through our own perspective, obviously a, a more conservative perspective. You can find our show on SoundCloud. You can find it on Stitcher. You can find it on Spotify. Really, anywhere you can find a podcast you can download. You can also find it on our Daily Signal website. You can check out my Twitter handle, at Jarrett Stetman. And
3: my Twitter, at Fred Lucas W H
0: thank you guys again for joining we hope all of our listeners join us next thursday morning for our brand new edition of problematic women in the meantime please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends as conservatives we need your support in the podcast world and would greatly appreciate you telling your friends about it leaving a five-star review on spotify on itunes or wherever you get your podcast on that note have a wonderful fourth of july
2: This podcast was created by The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Edited by Michael Gooden and Thalia Rampersad. Special thanks to The Daily Signal's editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko.
0: We produce problematic women in remembrance of our friend, Bree Payton.